Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Let's look at verse uh, 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making a request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, so much for this promise. And Lord, thank you for this confidence. Lord, uh, help us now as we study your word, as we think about a new year. In Jesus' name, amen. I had meant to bring in my list. I have a list of the most popular um, New Year's resolutions for 2013. The first one is lose weight. And then there's uh, spend more time with the family, be kind to someone, um, quit smoking, uh, this list of, of New Year's resolutions. Um, enjoy life more. How's that for a resolution? Enjoy. It, when you make your goal to enjoy life, it's going to be hard to do that without knowing what brings joy. And the only one that can bring joy is the joy giver, the one that is joy, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can have peace. And remember what we said as we studied this series, joy is that deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. I want to read to you something from Charles Spurgeon. You all know that I love Spurgeon. I actually texted this quote to about 15 preachers around the country this morning. Um, listen to what this says. Spurgeon wrote this. The dangers which attend the spiritual life are of the most appalling character. The life of a Christian is a series of miracles. See a spark living in the mid-ocean. See a stone hanging in the air. See health blooming in a leper house and the snow-white swan among rivers of filth, and you behold an image of the Christian life. The new nature is kept alive between the jaws of death, preserved by the power of God from instant destruction by no power less than the divine. Could its existence be continued? Isn't that true? You know, when you look at this world and how evil and sinful the world is, and then you look at a verse like verse 6. Let's look at it again. Here's Paul's confidence. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, if we were going to formulate from this verse a New Year's resolution, it would be this. Let Christ be formed in you. Understand that it's Christ that will perfect you, not any promises you make to Christ. Isn't that right? It's Jesus Christ that changes us. So we're going to look at three words today. We're going to look at the word confidence. We're going to look at, the, at, at a contrast. Then we're going to look at a question. But the first is confidence. Confidence. Look at verse 6 again. Being confident of this very thing. You know, with everything that's going on in the world, when you look at the fiscal cliff, you know, they're, they're arguing about raising taxes on 1%. That's supposedly the argument, which won't accomplish anything other than raising taxes on 1% for fairness. But they're not doing anything about the 
debt. We're going to have $20 trillion in debt. You know, to, to paraphrase someone from the 60s, a trillion here, a trillion there, and pretty soon you're talking about a lot of money. <laughs> you know, when we look at the economy and everything that's going on, Europe's about to collapse. We're running out of money as a country. We're looking at the moral state in America, Maine. They just had their first gay marriages. And you see all this stuff going on. And you're thinking, what does the future hold? What in the world is coming in the United States of America? Well, for the believer, you know what we ought to have? Confidence. Confidence. Our trust is not in Congress. Now, let me say this. If your trust is in Congress, if you're resting on Congress to make sure our country does well, please don't have confidence. <laughs> because it's a mess. No, no cutting. Let's just raise taxes. It's impossible to raise taxes enough to pay down the debt. You can't do it. You just got to stop spending. At some point, you've got to stop doing that. Is that right? Morality. You've got people who don't understand right and wrong trying to govern right and wrong. It's a mess. So what should we as believers look for in this new year? We should look for confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to make us like Him. Confidence. Now, first of all, confidence is an appropriate and necessary character trait for a believer. Let me say that again. Confidence is an appropriate and necessary character trait for a believer. Listen, nobody follows. Nobody wants to follow a person that doesn't know where they're going. Is that right? How many of you have ever been to McDonald's? Have you noticed that people in America do not know how to line up? It's hilarious. You walk into McDonald's, they have five registers. There's people working at all five registers. And you'll have people standing 10 feet back in this mass of humanity going like this. It's hilarious. Do you know what I do? This will surprise you. When I see that mass of humanity, I just walk up to the register. <laughs> hey, guys, lines right here. I, I can't tell you how many times I've done it. You come here, line up, line up. We can do this. I promise you, I can't take it, man. I want to lay down on the ground and start flopping around. What in the world's wrong with people? Line up! Nobody wants to follow somebody that doesn't have confidence. Isn't that right? How many of you know where you're going? Amen. <laughs> I'm going to heaven. Anybody want to come with me? We Confidence is a necessary character trait in the life of a believer. But there's a wrong definition of confidence for the believer to follow. A wrong definition. A belief or self-assurance in your ability to succeed. Let me read that again. A belief or self-assurance in your ability to succeed. If you're trusting in your ability to succeed, you're in big trouble. Why? Why? Because without Christ, we can do nothing. How many of you ever confidently made a mistake? Man, I'll never forget. I was a kid. I was riding my bike. And I was going to jump over a ditch on my bike. I got this. Man, on cartoons and on television, people jump bikes all the time, right? So I get going real fast and I hit the ditch, but there's no ramp. What did I do? I got hurt. 
<laughs> really bad. It was terrible. Another time I got these new boots. I was just a little kid. I got in these new work boots, and I thought they were steel-toed. So I had a friend throw a rock at my foot. <laughs> they weren't steel-toed. <laughs> Sometimes we can have confidence in the wrong thing and really mess up. Amen? One of my favorite stories of confidence, Lydia can accomplish anything. Okay? And we're at my in-laws, and we're shooting a twenty-two. And Lydia... How long ago was this? She, she wants us to say it was a really long time ago. But she's down there. She's really concentrating. And she fired. But she had her face too close to it. And the hammer came down on her lip. That was awesome. <laughs> that, confidence. Okay, everybody say it. Oh, Come on. How many of you think that's really funny? Seriously. That is really funny. All the guys, yes. It's hilarious. All of us have gone into those situations where we're confident in the wrong thing. So what's the proper definition of confidence for the believer? The proper definition of confidence is this. Belief or assurance in somebody or something or the ability of somebody or something to act in a proper, trustworthy, or reliable manner. And who is that one that we're confident in? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. The Spirit of Christ that dwells in us. That's where our confidence comes from. That's somebody that we should have confidence in. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence is well placed. Keep your place here in Philippians. Go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Isn't it amazing the wisdom that is found in the book of Proverbs? All right, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 26. For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Where is our confidence? The Lord. Where is our confidence? It's got to be in the Lord. As we're stepping into 2013, what is our confidence going to be in? It must be in the Lord not in ourselves. What a, what a restful situation that is. That's a, that is a blessing. Now, we need to understand. Our confidence is placed in the Lord. We understand that our salvation is completely of God. Is that right? Remember what Galatians 3? Let, let's go ahead and look at it. Galatians 3. Remind us from our study through Galatians. Galatians 3. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Where does our salvation come from? It comes from God. It comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saves us. Jesus Christ keeps us. We continue in Him, not in ourselves. Salvation is completely of God. What is true of the first moments of our salvation is true of it all. It's all from God and it's all a gift from Him. Isn't that right? It's all. That's where our confidence comes from. Though Paul saw evidence for assurance from the behavior of the Philippians, he saw more evidence of God's grace. Look at his confidence. Go back to Philippians. Look at his confidence. Being confident of this very thing. So Philippians 1.6 that he which hath begun a good work in you 
will perform it. Was his confidence in the Philippians or was his confidence in the Savior? That's where the confidence is. Now, uh, I don't know about you. I struggle with confidence in myself, in my decision-making. So often, you know, raising kids, raising kids, was making Jacob wear a dress for the first six years. Was that a mistake? (laughs) You know, we can question ourselves and what we're trying to accomplish. Was the Barbie dream house the wrong gift? Okay, none of that's true. Just a joke. You know, but, but how many of you, seriously, when you start looking at your kids, you know, my kids are teenagers now, we're thinking about their future and what they're going to do. Uh, I, I don't know what direction God has for them yet. Where's the confidence for those decisions come from? Where, where does that confidence come from? Well, I know that God has a plan for them. I know that God has a plan for my kids. That's the kind of confidence that we need to have. Our confidence comes from being assured of a good result. Amen? That's where our confidence comes from. You know, being up at the hospital this week, I was back in Indiana with my mom in the hospital, and you watch others who go through those things. Well, look, I am confident with my mom of a good result. She's going to get well or she's going to go to heaven. Amen? Now, look, the world doesn't understand that. The world can't understand that kind of confidence. Our confidence comes from assurance of a good result. And that's what Philippians 1.6 is about. We get to finish right. We get to finish right. God will do that. Paul was confident that God would, would work. Or I'm sorry. Paul was confident that God's work would come to fruition in the lives of of the believing Philippians. Now, I've got a truth that I want to give you. Y'all might want to write this down, and I'm not joking this time. Sometimes I mock it, but this, this is a truth that's really cool. God's work is by definition effective. God's work is by definition effective. Here's the idea. What can God do? Anything. And when God chooses to do something... That will be done. There's nothing that can stop it. Isn't that awesome? And what's God going to do in us? He's going to make us like Him. God, I'm confident that God is going to perfect me. That's how I'm going to end up. I am going to end up perfect. Now, how many of you think that God's got a lot of work yet to do? (laughs) But He's promised to do it. It's God that's going to do it. Not me. What a wonderful thing that is. That is confidence. So however much I mess up this year, and there's a good chance I may sin in 2013. There's a chance. Here's what I know. I know that God is going to continue perfecting me until He comes back to get me. What a blessing that is. You understand that my righteousness is not up to me? It's up to Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. When I get confident in my own righteousness, that's when I really mess up. I need to have confidence in Jesus Christ's righteousness. So, that's our next point. First is confidence, and the second is a contrast. A contrast. There's a tremendous contrast between us and Christ. Would you all agree with that? Yeah. Look at verse 6 again. Being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to take a ton of time and go through the day of the Lord and the day of Christ again. But the day of the Lord is the day that the Lord returns to judge the world. The day of the Lord is a bad thing for the world. Is that right? Bible says, so comes as a thief in the night. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us it's not going to come on us that way because we know it's coming. Is that right? But what is the day of Jesus Christ? The day of Jesus Christ is the rapture. That's when he takes us out. All of us that are saved, he's going to take us out. So what the Bible says is he is going to continue to perfect me until he returns. That's wonderful. But until then, how do I know how I'm doing. Now, I took a class in, in college. Uh, I, my degree was secondary education, and first time I went to school, college. Um, and so we took a class called Tests and Measures. Tests and Measures. And they taught us that the reason for testing is basically two reasons. To see where that child is, or where that student is, how that they are understanding the material. And then testing also teaches. Because when the student finds they can't answer that question, when you go over the test with them, they learn the answer to the question. All right? So there's two reasons for testing. So it's a really good idea for us to test our righteousness, our holiness, our spirituality throughout the year. And how are we going to test that? If I compare myself to Pastor Nathan, I will always look good. Maybe in my own mind. You know, I, I think Pastor Day is probably more holy than I am. He's definitely nicer than me. He's taller. <laughs> it, it's interesting how most of the time if we're going to compare our spirituality to someone, seriously now, if we're going to compare ourselves, uh, our spirituality to someone else, we're going to find somebody that we know is not living right. And we're going to say, you know what? I'm better than them. Now, come on. How many of you have ever thought that? Seriously. How many of you have ever thought that? Thank you, Lord, that I am not like this lowly publican. Now, we don't say it out loud, but we sure think it. Every time you go to Walmart, you're thinking it. Does <laughs> Tim Hawkins say he goes to Walmart so he can feel better about himself? <laughs> Look, I know that what we do is we compare ourselves to other Christians or non-Christians to gauge our spirituality. I was watching um, yesterday uh, a, a YouTube video of that Penn Gillette, you know, Penn and Teller, the magicians. And he was on some show uh, and they were t with, with liberals and they were talking about the, the school shooting. And, of course, the liberals are all playing to this. It was all a, women, a women's show in the morning. And so these three ladies are all playing to the crowd. And so he brought sanity to it. All right, And it was hilarious watching him destroy these ladies just using common sense. He was very kind in the way he did it, but it was really interesting to watch it. Well, then there was a link to another. Now, how many of you know who Pierce Morgan is? All right, I really don't like Pierce Morgan because he really doesn't like us. But he was interviewing Penn Gillette. Penn, this same guy, is an atheist. He's a libertarian atheist, and he's written a book proselytizing for atheism. 
Pierce Morgan was defending Christianity. So now I'm really confused. Who do I pull for? Right? And it's so interesting as you watch these things and you see what's going on. So wait a minute. Uh, I like Penn on the gun control, but he's an atheist. Uh, I like Pierce Morgan defending Christianity, but he's an idiot. What, what do I do with this? Well, look, we can't compare truth to those people. We, we compare uh, the world and the world's opinions to Jesus Christ. Listen to this statement I've written down. God is so delighted with Jesus Christ that he has called millions of sinful human beings to himself in order that Jesus might reproduce himself in them. That's awesome, isn't it? Let me read that again. God is so delighted with Jesus Christ that he has called millions of sinful human beings to himself in order that Jesus might reproduce himself in them. That's such an amazing thought. The Bible says that we become a perfect man when we become like Jesus Christ. So now, if I'm going to compare myself with someone, it's got to be with Jesus Christ. So now, all of a sudden, there's a huge contrast. Jesus, you said that you're going to perfect me, but right now I see that I have a long way to go. I've not arrived yet. What a contrast. Sanctification is not becoming aware of how perfect we are becoming. Sanctification means discovering how sinful we are and learning to turn to Jesus for hourly forgiveness and cleansing. It's interesting. The more you study the Scriptures, the more you pray, the more you try to serve the Lord, the more real your sinfulness becomes to you. How many of you would agree with that? Do you realize how debilitating that can become? That's why we have to understand our confidence is not in our flesh. The, the Apostle Paul said, he, Paul himself said that he was the most sinful man in the world. That's, what Paul, that's how Paul felt. Did God use the Apostle Paul? Why? Because he knew that he had to have confidence in Jesus. Because look, we're all just sinners. We're all just sinners. Our confidence must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the contrast between us and Christ helps us to understand how far we have yet to go. Look at Philippians. Look at Philippians again, chapter 3. And I'm sure that there were people in this room who were thinking of this passage as I was saying it. Look at what Paul said, Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I've not arrived. I've not captured all truth. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it's about, isn't it? Look, if you start focusing on your sin, you'll just be paralyzed. You won't be able to do anything. But if you rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, you'll have the confidence. You'll have the confidence to, like the Bible says, stop the mouths of lions. Amen? What confidence? What confidence that is? So we've not arrived. 
The purpose of this process is to teach us to rely on God. God does not take great pleasure in forcing us to develop low opinions of ourselves. But He knows that we will never rely on Him until we realize that we cannot rely on ourselves. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I remember I, I was out playing golf with a friend years ago when I was just learning to play. And I had these old clubs that were my dad's, and my driver was this old wood driver with leather grips. Now, some of you don't even remember seeing those things, but that's what I had. And uh, so I would hit my drive, and then my buddy, uh, he was in ministry, in a, in a ministry with me in college, just a, just a, the most humble guy. I'm trying to think of his name, but just a real humble, really a nice guy. And he was an amazing golfer. He just killed the ball. And I remember one time I said to him, um, man, if I, if I, I could hit like that if I had the right clubs. So he took my old delaminated driver. By delaminated, you know, an old wooden head was put together with glue, laminate strips. Well, mine was loose. The head was loose on it. He, hit, he took that club and hit it like 280 yards right down the middle. And really a humble guy. And he went like this. It's not the club. <laughs> Do you know what I realized? He was better than me. <laughs> he was just a better golfer than I was. See, that contrast helped me. I had to stop making excuses about the equipment and understand that I just need to learn how to be a better golfer. What Jesus Christ does is He reveals true righteousness. That gets the focus of us because we start to think that we've arrived. You know, I'm glad I'm not the way I used to be. Now, honey, seriously, get your, get your spiritual, you know, false spirituality out of the way. How many of you are really glad you're not the way you used to be? Praise God. Praise the Lord for that. But the danger is in being thankful that we're not the way that we used to be, that we never move any farther. We never move any farther. That's why the goalpost isn't me getting better. The goalpost is Jesus Christ. That's the finish line. That's where we're trying to go. That's why Paul said, I've not apprehended. I've got to follow Christ. I've got to keep following. All right, so now, we've looked at the contrast. We've looked at the, the, the confidence. But this leads us to two questions. Two questions. First of all, if God is going to do the work, why do we need to do anything? It's a fair question, isn't it? Because if the gift of life is real, it will manifest itself in a new lifestyle. When Jesus Christ changes me, He changes the way I live. My choices are changed. Let's go to a passage, a familiar passage for us. And this will tie us to what we're talking about. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So where does the grace that brings salvation come from? It comes from God. Right? It's not from us. Teaching us. What does this grace teach us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the grace that God gives us, it teaches us that we are to do some things. The first thing that it teaches us is this, deny ungodliness. And it's a choice. It is a choice. Is that right? And we see those choices all the time. Just this morning, I was doing some, just some surfing, looking at the, these, these uh, 
New Year's resolutions. You pull up a website, and now you have choices on the side of this website of places to go that a believer shouldn't go. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So as a believer, what do we do? We deny ungodliness. You have a choice right here. You're going to deny the ungodliness. It, it's as simple as that. It's a simple choice. We can look at something. We can say, okay, that's godly. That's not godly. So I'm going to deny the ungodliness and move toward the godliness. The, the, is that because I'm a good guy? No. That's what the grace of God does in your life. It gives you the ability to see the difference between godliness and ungodliness. And it gives you the ability to choose the godliness. That's not from me. That's from Christ. That's what He does in me. So, if God's going to perfect me, why do I need to do anything? Because God's way of perfecting us is giving us the tools to accomplish that perfection. Understanding that even those tools are from Him. Amen? What a blessing. Here's the gift that God gives us. He gives us the ability to cooperate with Him in our sanctification. Isn't that a blessing? God allows us to go along with Him in accomplishing that. That is an amazing thing. Now, second question. Second question. If these people... Go back to Philippians 1. Let's look at verse 6 again. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident of this. If they are eternally secure, why does Paul continue to pray for them? Questions that come from this. If they're eternally secure, why does Paul continue to pray for them? Where is he praying for them? Look at what it says in verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you, uh, for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's praying for them. He's praying for them. But is he praying for God to keep them? Is that his prayer? Think about this. Paul never prays for their continued salvation. Why? Because it's Jesus Christ that does that. Remember, I think it's 1 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He doesn't pray that God will keep their salvation. That's not what he prays. He prays that God's purposes will be fulfilled in their lives. Isn't that what we pray for for our kids? I want Jacob to serve God. I want Lydia to serve God. I pray that with them every day. Lord, please help them to grow up to love you and serve you. That, that's, that's the greatest thing in the world. I don't care what vocation they go into. I don't care. I'm, not in, I'm interested, but I don't have a preference. But I do want them to love God and serve Him for the rest of their lives. Amen? Amen. Perhaps you're saying that you will run your own life Pick your own goals. Choose your own purposes. Well then, God may have to break you until you learn that He is determined to accomplish His purposes in you. It would be better just to submit to Him now. Amen? Perhaps instead, you'll be willing to learn to rely on Him, growing in grace as He molds you into the image of Christ. If this is so, 
then for you, Philippians 1.6 will become a blessed truth rather than a bitter lesson. How many of you have ever had a bitter lesson? I remember I got a wood-burning set when I was a kid. Those things are like torture instruments. Do you remember those, the wood-burning deal? And it had this, this tip that would heat up and it would get red hot and you'd have these little pieces of wood with uh, ink stamps on them and you would burn into it so that you'd have this piece of art that was left. I had to learn the lesson not to touch my fingers with that. You know, it have this little place where you're supposed to hold it. Well, if you're, if you're working on the thing and you reach over and grab it and your hands go down too far, I had these white burned calluses on my hands because I was too dumb to look before I reached. That was a bitter lesson. I remember sticking a, a key in a light socket when I was a kid. How many of you are surprised that I would do those things? Just insane. Just crazy things that I would do. <laughs> I, I, I learned the hard way to get off of my motorcycle on the right side. And I forgot that lesson. We were out in Colorado a couple of years ago. My brother-in-law got a motorcycle. So I, I took his Harley out and I'm riding it. We, I pull into the garage and I got off on the wrong side. I burned my leg so bad. What was that? That was a bitter lesson. Do you know a better way? you know a better way to live? A better way to live is to look to Jesus, look to His Word before you make decisions in life and ask Him to guide you, ask Him to direct you. Do you know the lessons are a whole lot sweeter that way? They're a whole lot sweeter. Listen to what F.B. Meyer said. We go into the artist's studio and find their unfinished pictures covering large canvases and suggesting great designs but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because paralysis laid the hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the mark of haste or insufficiency of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which His grace has begun, the arm of His strength will complete. Isn't that good? God has no unfinished works. The God who saves is the God who justifies. The God who saves is the God who sanctifies. The God who saves is the God who glorifies. The God who begins is the God who completes. During His incarnation, the Lord gave this absolute and unambiguous assurance, which is a source of joy to all those who will ever trust Him. Listen to what He said, John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Amen? Praise the Lord. I hope this year that you'll have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, He's not done with you yet. He has plans for you, and they're wonderful plans. But let's make sure those lessons are sweet lessons and not bitter lessons as we look to Him first. Thank you, Lord, so much for Your Word. Thank you for the confidence that we have in Your Word.